Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your hosts, Dr. Dana Fang and myself, Dr. Elise Putt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Carl. Now, many of you know Dr. Carl, but not all of you would necessarily know that he has a medical degree and he served some years as a junior doctor. Dr. Carl has become better known for his incredible work on the Australian radio stations Triple J and Double J as their resident science expert. His career has also seen him on numerous TV shows, radio shows, in newspapers and magazines, and probably in your TikTok feed. Carl has degrees in physics, maths, and biomedical engineering, as well as a medical degree. He began working as a doctor in Sydney in the late 80s, leaving a job at Sydney Children's Hospital with a mission to provide accurate scientific education to the masses. I'm very excited to get to chat with him today so we can find out all about how he came to be the icon that he is today. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, Dr. Carl. Ahoy, Dr. Elise. Lovely to be with you. It's so good to have you on the show. Now, I think a lot of our listeners will have a pretty good idea of parts of what you do, mm-hmm. but how would you describe your current work and the current roles you do? I've simplified it right down into the generic term of storyteller, although I am officially employed to some degree by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the University of Sydney, where I have this lovely position called a fellow. And a fellow is like a lecturer, but you don't actually have to do anything. Uh, an even better job, but very rare, is the reader. And a reader is like a professor, but once again, you don't have to do anything. You can just do whatever you feel like. And so you can go down to the beach and surf around for a bit. And you notice that the waves are coming in, the tide is coming in, all makes sense. But then six hours later, the waves are still coming in, but the tide is going out. How come? And being somebody who doesn't have to do anything else, the reader can then concentrate on that interesting little question and solve it. And so I'd describe myself as a storyteller, but also a kind of academic-ish broadcaster. I don't know. It's too confusing. Sounds like a lot of roles and a little bit of an explanation on how you seem to know so much about so much. That's just a three-part process. Uh, How come I know so much? I'm not particularly smart. My IQ is only 110, so I'm in there with two-thirds of the population between 85 and 15. But I do have a very good education, mainly due because once upon a time, the Australian government thought that education was a worthwhile investment in the future. They don't make that mistake anymore. And so as a result, I have 28 years of free education, starting off in baby jail and working my way through primary school, high school, And then 16 years at university, including degrees in physics and mathematics, which they're really good because they give you a mental toolbox to understanding the universe. And the toolbox, you then just shove in different data, which can be geology or biology or anything, but you can pretty well shift into anything. And then master's degree in biomedical engineering, when I designed and built a machine for Fred Hollows to pick up electrical signals off the human retina. And then degrees in medicine and surgery as well as four non-degree years at university for free in electrical engineering, computer science, philosophy, and astrophysics. So that's 16 years of university education, but that's not the real education. The real education is then the second part, which is keeping up to date. 
because as soon as you've had an education, it immediately becomes obsolete. And so I read my way through roughly $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year, which is a pile a couple of metres thick, about one and a half, two metres thick each year. And then there's the online reading as well. So I like to read on paper, to answer the question, which I think was a question of how come I know so much, I like to read on paper, but I like to store electronically because it's easier to find. But the third part is equally important, and that's turning it into a story. So if you just read something, it floats into your mind, and then after a while, other stuff buffets it that comes into your mind. And is Mount Everest eight kilometers high or seven, or is it five? And you can't quite remember. And so I work on the fact that I turn stuff into stories. Let me tell you a story, for example. A couple of weeks ago, there was a knocking at the door in the middle of the night. And I went and peeked through the blinds and there's a big limo out the front, a big black limo with some big gorilla standing out there, a metaphorical gorilla, a human, not an actual gorilla, uh, but some sort of bodyguard. And so I went downstairs and who should be there but, wait for it, Kim Kardashian, who said, hey, Carl, I've got some surprise for you and your wife. Get, grab your passports for Mary Dobby and come with me. And I've got a really big surprise for you. And I said, okay. I went down, Mary and I then jumped into the limo and we went to the airport and she said, look, I can fly to America in a G7. Do you know what a G7 is? It's a private jet. I've never been in a private jet. I've been insanely jealous. So I said, yeah, I'm in. And so we went over to Washington, D.C. and We end up having nude mud baths with several of the world leaders. We discovered that all of the world leaders are actually shape-changing reptiles from the planet Zog. Now I'll just suddenly stop. I told you a story. And you can repeat that story back pretty accurately. But if I gave you the words in alphabetical order, you couldn't, starting off with the preposition A and finishing off with the name Zog. So there's something about stories that's unique to the human brain where you can store them as a single block of information or a gestalt. And so I spend five to ten hours turning some information I have into a story and then I can tell that story in three minutes. But each time I give an answer on the radio, it lasts for three minutes, there's an invisible 10 hours work behind it. So to answer the non-question of how come I know so much, it's because I write stories. I've written 47 books. And so writing it down is good because it forces you to know what you're doing. Like in medicine, when you're with a patient and you write the notes, part of that is so you've got a legal record and that other people can know. But also it's to force you to formalize your thinking so that you say, oh, yes, they did have bow lines on their large fingernails and they were six millimetres in. And if you divide that by two millimetres a week, that means that three weeks ago they had something crook happen to them. It forces you into thinking. So how do I know stuff? By telling stories. <laughs> Sorry about that long and complicated answer. I'll try and give shorter ones in the future. No, I think a lot of medical people might not like the fact that you branched out from medicine because if you wrote all of the medical textbooks, I think it might be a bit easier to remember all the medical content that you have to get through. But that was just a tiny part of what you learnt over your 16 years. Yeah, well, I learned the storytelling later. I learned that by going into the media. I didn't learn that at the time. In fact, I only really understood the stupid rotator cuff when I had shoulder surgery for a torn supraspinatus. And I never really got the philosophy of the rotator cuff. And tell me if I'm right or wrong. So with the hip joint... It's got inherent structural stability. You don't have to worry. Just chuck some muscles on it. It'll go this way and that. But with the shoulder joint, it's like a ball rolling on a very shallow plate. 
And my understanding now, which could be wrong, is that the rotator cuff muscles are a set of four or so muscles that hold the ball in the right place and they're small. And their job is to hold the ball in the right place so that then when the big muscles, the pectoralis major and the latissimus dorsi and the deltoid, when they kick into action, the ball is in the right place that you don't have interference of all the muscles and are running into each other and that they're able to slip underneath a bone and in this complicated stupid joint. Is that kind of right? Sounds about right. I'm going to say you probably know the shoulder joint better than I do. Oh, no. No, I don't. I'm currently working in a ski clinic and you see a lot of shoulder injuries. So it's definitely not a very stable joint. Yeah. And it's amazing that you've got virtually the same treatment, which is put in a stupid sling. And having had to wear a sling, I've got a great deal of respect for people who wear a sling. Instead of thinking, oh, you're wearing a stupid sling, they could have anything wrong with their shoulder. Like on one occasion, my nine foot six male. Uh, surfboard smashed into my left shoulder and broke the ball into 40 pieces held together only by blood clot. And luckily, none of the breaks were across the articular surface. So amazing that I can still move the shoulder around, but the treatment was to wear a sling, which is everything from a sprained wrist all the way up to the ball has been busted into your rotator cuff has vanished and everything. And so message to everybody, be kind to somebody when you see them wearing a sling. <laughs> An important message. I wanted to get a bit of a sense of what you were thinking mm. when you actually went into medical school, where you thought you were going to take that career. Was it where you've ended up or was it somewhere completely different? Well, I didn't really know why I went into medicine. It was a weird pathway. Like, So I started off in physics and I'm thinking, yeah, I pretty well understand why when you go up a mountain it gets colder, why waves work. But I had no idea about the stuff inside your body. And I thought it was just this sort of chunky red salsa that would leak out if you got into a fight or in the movies. And then I did biomedical engineering and I did physiology and I thought, oh my God. I mean, the universe that exists in your body is just so complex, possibly beyond the complexity of the actual physical universe itself. For example, in a 24-hour day, the amount of water that crosses your membranes and goes back again is 50,000 litres, 50 tonnes. On the outside, you're just this boring skin, but on the inside, there's this maelstrom of dynamic hydraulic activity and ATP. So you've got about 200 to 400 grams of ATP in your body at any time, but over the course of a day, you manufacture your own body weight. So each day, you manufacture your own body weight in a chemical. Jesus. You know, so I was astonished by physiology. And then I went into biomedical engineering where I designed built this machine to pick up electrical signals off the human retina. And I was coming near the end of it, and I spent one year thinking about it, and then one year building it using virtually every hand tool known to society. And it was just a wonderful, very happy year. I could just potter along at my own rate and just do anything. And then there was this guy who had a motorbike, and he wasn't wearing his goggles. And a stone had come up and turned one eye into a pulpy mess. And he was now in line, a bit down the line, for a corneal graft. But the trouble was they didn't know whether he had a functioning retina underneath. And my machine was the only one that was the most powerful of its type in the world, only because it was the latest one. I just had the brightest lights and so forth. It was the most powerful of its type in the world. And I was able to shine light upon his eyeball and then pick up a signal of his retina from the red cones, the green cones, and the blue cones, as well as from rods, 
and say, yeah, clean bill of health, mate, you got yourself a functioning retina, you know, even though you can barely tell the difference between day and night, yeah, you got a retina, so they can give you a cornea. And he said, will you do the operation? And I said, I can't, I'm not a doctor. And he said, why not? And uh, I tend to listen to what people say, and I said, yeah, why not? And I said, I don't know. And I had three PhD scholarships offered to me in different directions, but I thought, oh, this human body stuff, like, is really weird. Like, all this crap that goes, all this stuff that happens. So I then applied to go into medicine. That was a little bit tricky. I wasn't really too sure why I wanted to go into medicine. I had a letter from my father telling me I was a failure, that I'd failed at being a physicist and still engineer and academic in New Guinea and a filmmaker and a taxi driver and a hospital officer and a scientific officer in a hospital, and now I'd failed at being a biomedical engineer because I want to go off into something else. And so that was happening in part of my mind thinking, I'm a failure. And the other part was thinking, but it just seems so wild. And, you know, I wanted to get into this human stuff. And my neighbours, I was living in the squats in Glebe, having booed out the junkies and the hell's angels. I had a place to myself. And my neighbours said, but you're 32. It'll take you 10 years to become a doctor. In 10 years' time, you'll be 42. And I thought, yeah, you're right. You know, So I went to sleep on it and I woke up in the morning and I said to my neighbours, look, you're right, you're dead right, but in 10 years' time, I'll be 42, regardless of whether I study medicine or not, I'm still going to be 42. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, because it takes you 10 years to know anything. So I went down that pathway. I really didn't understand why I became a medical doctor until one night in casualty in the kids' hospital. And it was wall to wall with people. It was really busy. It was the middle of winter. People were burning wood fires. There was smoke in the air. Kids coming in for asthma. And in came this couple, this family. The kid didn't have asthma. And they came in. And as soon as they came in, they said, our son's having rolling fevers. I think he was about three or four. And nobody can diagnose it. And every time we try to take him to a doctor, the fevers go away. And he's having fevers now. And you're here. And they burst into tears. And so in paediatrics, you have to treat the whole family unit. So I knew that I had to go gently. And so I did something I would normally not do. And I asked the nurse to make us all a cup of tea, which I wouldn't do because that's really unfair. But I knew her and she knew me. And I said a few facial gestures. And so she made us all a cup of crappy dip tea. So I started and I listened to them and they told me the whole history, which is summarized as rolling fevers for about three months, which got better as soon as they saw a doctor. And then they said, can you check him out thoroughly? There's something very wrong. So I knew what was wrong with him. Have you done, are you familiar with clavicular recession in pediatrics? Yeah. So that means for those who are listening and are not medical, that with the clavicle, the collarbones, above them is a bit of a gap that you call the supraclavicular I don't know, gap or something. But when you see it being sucked in, especially in a kid, it means they're breathing really hard and you got your diagnosis, something with the lungs. But they were so upset and distraught. I went down the whole pathway. I examined his bloody musculoskeletal system and his cranial nerves and everything. And then I said, look, I think I've got a pretty good idea because they needed reassurance. They were like jangling on the edges. They were in tears. So it took longer than I should have and took a full history knowing that it would be for an admission. So I wrote it like it was an admission. And I said, look, I've got a good idea. I think you should go and get an X-ray. And they said, uh, look, can you tell us what you think it is? I said, I could spend an hour telling you all the possibilities. 
or you can go away, get the x-ray, be back in half an hour and know what it really is in half an hour, your call. They said, we'll get the x-ray, right. And so I have the next patient, then the next patient. And, they, and in those days, there used to be a common wall where they put the x-rays on and the cubicles were hammering off this wall. And then somebody walked out, somebody must have put the x-rays up and another person walked past and said, whoa, you got a live one, Carl? And they kept on going. So I finished with the patient. I looked out and there was this beautiful little pneumonia. As I suspected, as soon as I had the history of the rolling fevers and the supraclavicular recession, when the kid was breathing hard, he had a stupid pneumonia. Finished with that patient, got the next parents in, told them, I said, I've got some good news and bad news. And the bad news is that your son has pneumonia. The good news is that we'll admit him. We'll put a line in. We'll give him industrial-grade antibiotics. He will not die. In the morning, he'll be 100%. We'll keep him for another day because we do that sort of stuff. And you'll never know. And this thing that could have killed him before antibiotics will not. And he'll live and he'll be perfectly fine. And then they burst into tears and I burst into tears. I couldn't help it. It was at that moment I realized why I became a doctor, which was to liberate people from what was holding them back. How did you go from feeling that sort of strong connection to patients and the work in the healthcare system to a transition out of clinical medicine and into broader education? Once again, it was a death potential situation, which kind of tends to heighten the emotions in us humans. We're kind of wired up that way. And in this case, the background is that the vaccine for whooping cough is not terribly effective individually. It's a fairly crappy vaccine. But providing you've got every bugger in the population vaccinated, it's pretty damn good. The herd immunity is great. And one of the TV stations had decided that they could get more people watching their TV show by starting a controversial topic. On one hand, you've got a history of vaccines going back 1,200 years to when the Chinese started blowing dried fragments of smallpox pustule up people's noses. Now, smallpox by itself has a 30% death rate. The vaccine, virtually zero, very close to zero, but the death rate from blowing the dried bits of smallpox pustule was about 1% because sometimes there was too much smallpox, in which case it killed them, and sometimes there was none, in which case they didn't get any protection. And we've got all that right to the present, and we've got this long history that overwhelmingly, going back over 1,200 years, vaccines are overwhelmingly safe. They have side effects, all drugs are poisons, but the advantages massively outweigh the disadvantages, and not just by a little bit, massively. And on the other hand, you've got some person who hasn't had this knowledge in their head saying that vaccines cause autism and cancer, and oh, God knows what else, bad breath. And so the TV station said one body of thought says that vaccines are safe, but another body of thought says that they're not. You decide, listener, and keep on watching our show and buy the stuff that we sell in the ads. And as a result, the vaccine rate in Australia went down. And after a 20-year history of virtually zero deaths from whooping cough, a baby died in the kids' hospital where I was. And the baby didn't have to die. And it died because of that TV show, A Current Affair. And I realised because I was already doing a bit of media, that I could do far more good in the media than I could in the hospital system. I loved the best job I ever had in my life was being a kid's doctor. But I could do more for society by saying, get vaccinated. And so I've been doing that and I get contacts and emails and people say, 
My mother-in-law was uh, not going to get vaccinated against COVID, but she heard you talking about it on the radio in Cairns, and so she did. And so my job is done. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. How did you actually start that transition into the media? Was it things that came to you or was it opportunities you actively sought out? There was another failure. I failed to become an astronaut. So in 1981, the Americans were going to launch the space shuttle into orbit. And I'd been following the space shuttle for a while. And I thought, bugger it. I'm going to apply to become an astronaut. So I wrote a letter off to NASA, which I still have today, saying, hey, I'm a fit young thing, can run city to surf, got degrees in physics and maths and engineering. Uh, in seven years, six years, I'll have a, five years, I'll have a degree in medicine and surgery. Can I be an astronaut? Yours truly, Carl. And they sent me a letter back, and I still have a letter hand-signed, typed on a typewriter, which you might have seen those things, and signed by a human with a ballpoint pen, oh my God, uh, saying, look, we're all full up, and anyway, we only employ Americans. But at that time, the radio station Double J, the youth network, was doing a show, a series on the fact that it was the United Nations Year of Transport, because transport is incredibly important to help people liberate themselves and have a fuller life. Sometimes you live your whole life in your village, but sometimes you want to go somewhere else and then come back again. And so uh, they were doing the space shuttle, and I rang them up and they said, look, I know a bit about the space shuttle. Do you want me to come and talk about it? And they said, oh, tell us a bit about it now. So I talked to them a bit, and they said, look, why don't you come in? And so I came in, and then they took me to the back room, and they started the tape recorder going. They said, look, tell us about the space shuttle. And I wasn't scared to talk, and I was able to speak in sentences. Each sentence had a capital letter at the front. It had a subject and a predicate. It had a comma in the middle usually. It had a verb and it had a full stop. And by the way, there are many people who do not speak in sentences. They don't have verbs. They don't finish sentences. They just dribble onto the next sentence and then there's a lot of likes and a huge amount of indefinite pronouns like it and so forth. So they said, oh, yeah, you're okay. Look, why don't you come in and do the launch of the space shuttle? So we came in and I came in there to do the live commentary to the launch of the space shuttle. And it was a really big deal. What they had was a link from an audio link all the way across. You couldn't get video. That was impossible back in those days. Nowadays, you can lie in your bed and watch the launch of a spacecraft off your smartphone. But back then, we had to get the lines going all the way from Cape Canaveral. We had to book the audio lines from Cape Canaveral to Los Angeles, to Hawaii, to overseas telecommunications in Martin Place, and then into Master Control in the Central, and then into double J, and we only had them for a certain amount of time, and then we could listen to the commentary live. Uh, we couldn't see anything. And so we were listening to them and talking about what was going on, and then suddenly it turned into, oh, we've got a problem. We can't go ahead with the launch because the auxiliary power unit didn't work, which turned out to be a fuel cell, and everybody's looking at each other, and nobody else who was commentating, because we could tap into other people commentating, knew what a fuel cell was, but because I was had scientific training, I knew what a fuel cell was. It's a box that makes electricity, so long as you give it fuel, which is usually hydrogen. And it makes water and electricity both very useful on a spacecraft. And so I explained what it was. And then we came back the next week and we did the whole launch of the space shuttle and went up and door quite successfully. And we we're out the back having a cup of tea. And the producer said, I really need this cup of hippie tea to clean my kidneys. And I said, Look, I'm awfully sorry to disagree with you, but I've studied physiology. And it's not that it cleans your kidneys, but rather that your kidneys filter around. 200, 250 litres of blood every day. They pull out about 1,000 to 1,500 grams of salt, and then they put all of that salt back in to your bloodstream, 
except for about 80,000th of a gram, which goes out in your urine. And the reason that they go to this incredible metabolic effort is because God made a mistake in where fish gone wrong. And he said, we need you for a show called Great Moments in Science, which at that time was an ABC presenter playing music to black and white movies on Channel 10 on Saturday afternoon. And that's how my media career began. I was invited to do sciencey things based on the fact that I knew what the kidneys did <laughs> and that I'd failed at becoming an astronaut. So this was all alongside med school at that point? I was in med one. And so I did all these different stories uh, while I was going through doing med one, then med two, and then med three. And then I, I dropped out. I failed again. I dropped out in year four and then started up a TV show on ABC TV called Quantum, a big science show. And then after a year, I realized that TV is a funny place. And so I went back into medicine again. Later down the line, so after you'd gone back to med and were working in clinical med and then you started, did, was it a sudden drop or was it a gradual picking up more of the media work and dropping off your clinical load? The main thing was a TV show killing a few dozen babies around Australia because they said that vaccines don't work. That was, for me, the main inspiration. I hadn't thought of the media as being the forces of evil, but of course they always have been. They've been the forces of good and evil all the way along. So it was a sudden change after that? It was that combined with the fact that I was working about maybe 80 hours a week and being paid for 40, and I had a newborn baby. Mm. So then I tried to stay working from home, gently in the media, but it just got too hectic. So then I decided the only obvious way around that was to set up my four-wheel drive vehicle and then I end up going down that, but that way we could go into the outback. And on our longest trip, after I'd set it all up, I end up going from, we left Alice Springs, we went west for a thousand kilometres, turned right, went north for a thousand kilometres. And in that trip of 2,000 kilometres, which took us a month, we met only one other group of travellers and we had to carry all of our own food for a month, all of our own fuel, 600 litres. And that gradually morphed into another aspect of my career where I was a test driver of four-wheel drives for about a quarter of a century, and that was a lot of fun. And so I've been through 15 of the 17 deserts in Australia, and I've spent a total of about two years sleeping in the Australian outback. Sounds like you've done a lot more, had a lot more careers than even the average person today, which everyone gets told they have more careers today than anyone ever did before. But I think you were the pioneer of that route. Yeah, well, it was weird. When I went to work at the Steelworks, so there I was. I went through school, went to university, and so at the age of 19, I'm fully qualified as a physicist working in the Steelworks in Wollongong. And I noticed that some of the people were really interesting and that they had lives that they lived. And there are other people who'd been out of the school system for 20 years, but they hadn't lived for 20 years. They'd had one year of life and they repeated that 20 times. And they were curiously staid, conservative, and immature. Conservative in the sense that they were hanging on to the values that they had when they left school and they weren't going to change them for anything. And other things hadn't changed. It was a real surprise to me to realize that some people don't actually live each second as though it might be your last or second last second. Pretty inspirational way to live, I think. I think, especially coming from medical backgrounds, a lot of people that come to creative careers in medicine, they find that community where they've 
finding other doctors that have strayed off the path because the traditional path is so one track and it's a lot of focus on your career and your path and the future. Sounds like you've always lived minute to minute and just taken the path that interested you most at the time. That is very perceptive. And in fact, I'm the opposite of the scholar in that famous poem from the Sung dynasty in China who wants to work out what to do with their life and asks a wise person who says, go to the tallest tower and look at all the roads that leave out of this city and pick the most interesting one. I haven't done that. I've been the exact opposite and lived like a paddle pop stick in a gutter of life washed by the currents that I have no control over. Although planning to do medicine and then sticking to it is sticking to one thing. The problem with the medical system training as it is in Australia is that there's an overall tendency for people to go straight through from baby jail to primary school to high school to university and then straight into a medical career and they haven't had the luxury of an entire year off where you do all the stupid mistakes you're supposed to make when you're a teenager. And in some cases, I've seen medical people go right through the pathway and they're working, they're happy, and everything's going fine, they've got a family, and suddenly at the age of 35 or 40 or whatever, they make the mistakes that they should have made when they were 17. And they make some stupid mistakes and they wreck up their lives and families and stuff. And so there are grounds for having a compulsory year off where you work in jobs where people are rude to you and to earn money and then you spend the next part of the year traveling. And the advantage of working in jobs where people are rude to you is that when you get rich and famous, you won't be rude to people who work in jobs where people are rude to them. And I think some medical doctors, and it's not their fault, they've just been on this roller coaster and then suddenly find themselves at 35 with a family thinking, in the words of the David Bowie song, how did I get here? No, it's not David Bowie. Who's the other one from New York? Don't know that one? Couldn't help you with that one. Letting the days roll by and the water running. How did I get here? Who is this world? Who is this house? Who is this wife? Who, what is this car I have? How did I get here? So they find themselves in this weird position. A story I've heard a few times, more than a few times in medicine. But the trouble is that if you take a year off, on one hand, there's a loss of the career advancement, and especially so even today for women. So on one hand, you have the situation where every political party is very big on the family. But on the other hand, if you want to have childcare, you can spend a large percentage of your pre-tax income on childcare. People who suddenly wake up thinking, how do I get here and why haven't I done other things? Oh, definitely. Especially in the Creative Careers in Medicine Facebook group, there's discussions about it all the time, but I've seen it amongst my peers as well, just people that I've worked with very common theme in medicine. So I think more people need to think the way that you think. I'm a big fan of the forced gap year or career break. So, ah, Well, each of my kids did it and they turned out fine. I'm very lucky. I'm wondering after all the things that you've done, did you ever escape that feeling of feeling like a failure to your father? Yes and no. It's, it's tricky. On one hand, most people get all the praise they need in their entire life in kindergarten when the teacher says, oh, you did a really good job of colouring in the lines, whereas I'm fairly shallow and I need constant updates of praise, I've realised. 
And so I really enjoy it when I'm in the supermarket and people say, look, thanks for what you do on the radio. As a result of you listening on the radio, you know, you doing these shows on the radio and me listening to them, I have, and then they'll say, become a chippy, become a nurse, gone back to school and finished my higher school certificate, gone back and finished my PhD, have started training as a carpenter. And I have no idea what it is answering stuff on the radio that inspires people to get a change in their life, but it makes me feel really good. So on one hand, from that, I feel like I am not a failure. But on the other hand, I do have a tendency to fantasize. And if I had run my life just a little bit differently, I could be a multi-billionaire, Australia would be a republic, I would have won four Nobel Prizes, and Australia would be running entirely off green energy if I had been able to read the future and you gain some political power. And I blew it, man. You might be the only person in Australia that thinks that there's any part of what you've done that you could count as a failure. It might be reassuring to everyone to hear that even people out there who are achieving everything that you've achieved still feel that way. I could have done so much more, like getting into the federal Senate and then fighting for climate change. And the biggest lie that the climate, the fossil fuel companies are telling is a very powerful one, which is that it's irreversible. And in fact, we could reverse a lot of it within 10 years. And the first step would be just to keep the carbon atoms underground. But instead they say, oh no, we've got to move towards carbon neutrality by burning more methane. They're lying. And if I had been autocratic enough and powerful enough and brutal enough and wealthy enough, in addition to winning the Nobel Prizes, I could have made Australia a better place. I'd be a benevolent dictator, trust me. <laughs> I believe you. Now, we have a lot of medical students and junior doctors that listen to our podcast. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could give a little bit of advice for anyone who is starting out in the early days of their medical degree or career and thinking they might like to do something along the lines of what you've done. First thing is to get really good at medicine. If you're in early days, it takes you 10 years to get good. And whatever you want to do, you want to be good. You don't want to leave it as somebody who hasn't done the best they can. So become a good doctor and a competent doctor. So in later life, when there's the emergency that happens on the airplane, you can do something. So my record in plane emergencies was in 1949, where I had 141 flights and four of them lived and one died. And since then, I've had one medical emergency per flight. You normally have one medical emergency per 11,000 passenger flights, and most of them have fallen into the category of PFO or piston fell over or other minor things. Nobody else has died. So you, the one thing you want to do is to become competent. A rather high percentage of people who go into medicine come from a background which is not working class, and they do not know what a chippy or a sparky is, a carpenter or an electrician. And in this case, you follow the advice of Mao Zedong, which is that the revolutionary swims in the ocean of the people, but in this case, the doctor swims in the ocean of the people. And you love people. You have to love people. And you want to find out about their line of work. That's a nice phrase. What's your line of work? And so you can make diagnoses based on knowing what their job is. Understand the people and, and if you don't love people, you shouldn't be a medical doctor. You've got to love people and you've got to want to make their life better. It is not as though 
uh, here I can fill out some paperwork, I can spend some time and I'll get fabulously wealthy and I'll get a Maserati real soon. But rather, I'm trying to create little islands of happiness around me and then the world will be a better place. So that should be your main motivation. But then you do need time off for yourself to find who you were. So on one hand, you should work hard and study hard and follow the pathway. But then on the other hand is you should stop and stare at your belly button to find out who's on the inside. And you need a mixture of both along the pathway. Something we ask everyone that comes on our show and something you've already given us a few answers to. So I want to challenge you to try and give us an answer that you haven't already given us. But if you were to career, pursue a career outside of science, which I want to expand to you to also be outside of politics and outside of all the other jobs that you've done along the way, what would you do? Probably be a motor mechanic again. I used to be a backyard mechanic, not licensed, but people would give me money and I'd fix up their cars. And in some ways, being a car mechanic, I know this is a weird thing to say, can be more satisfying than being a medical doctor because with a person, they're going to keep on getting older and if they're a kid, they'll sort of reach their peak around 18 to 25 and then it's downhill. And if you're over 25, it's downhill, you're on the way sort of looking like a badly packed sack of potatoes with all sorts of diseases accumulating at the rate of one disease per decade. But with a car, if everything goes to shit, if everything goes really bad, you can jack up the windscreen wipers and just roll a new car underneath and keep the customer happy. And so the job has an end and a definite end where you give the car back and it's as good as it can be and better than it was because you fixed up the wrong thing. And so I think I'll probably go into being a car mechanic because each job has its own beginning and end. The only other more, slightly more attractive job would be hanging the washing on the line because that for me is incredible satisfaction. So I've got a little clothesline out the back with wire and, and galvanized iron and uh, I hang the big sheets on the outside and then the next layer is really short to allow maximum sun p- penetration during the day and the underwear goes there but I'll put the underwear inside out so that the ultraviolet light can kill the germs. Then a slightly taller layer, then shorter, and I'll do that. And it doesn't really matter much in summer when there's heat to burn, but in winter when you've got limited sunlight and you want to get maximum heating, then I just love the fact that you put them online and you take them off. And various things have happened with the ultraviolet. They smell nice. So that's another job I'd like. I think you could get that going pretty easily. I think people would <laughs> happily have you come and hang their washing out on their line for them. And then, of course, being a roadie for rock and roll bands would be fun again. I'd like to do that. And then being on stage, that was a career I never fully explored when I was a roadie and I should have taken the opportunity and I failed at that too. Well, you've inspired me. I think I need to go out and get about 10 more careers. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Carl. It's been so incredible to hear about your many lives and I'm sure our listeners will feel very inspired listening to this. And I'll just finish off, thank you, with one bit of advice which I learned only at a fairly advanced age which is never have sex with anybody who has more problems than you do. The sex is great, but you'll pay for it. And I only discovered that in first year uni when I was 32. And there are some people who have never discovered it in their whole lives. I think we might have to do a follow-up episode now to delve more into that. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Carl. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. 
The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 